providing that the volume is matched between the groups, there's no real difference between whether you do it multiple times a week or just once or twice, um, as the case was there. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about microdosing. So microdosing was brought up by Derek Hansen five or six years ago on the Pacey Performance Podcast when it came to speed training. But this episode with Matt Cuthbert is all about resistance training and using microdosing as a way of sequencing sessions, managing volume, maintaining intensity, and getting all the benefits that come with that. So we also discussed a little the, the, the pitfalls of potentially using a microdosing approach throughout a whole season. And Matt gives us examples of how he's used it with the Football Association, with Academy Girls at the highest level here in the UK. So a really interesting episode that whether you're working with football, rugby, whatever you, sport you're working with, if you're looking to dive into the area of microdosing, take a listen to this episode because it's a, it's a real quality episode with some incredible information from Matt. We'd love to know what you think about it as always and enjoy. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt. Matt Cuthbert, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, being flexible in moving times around. And yeah, it's, it's great to get you on. And like we said just before you hit record, this is a topic, well, microdosing is a topic that is catching a lot of people's interest, is creating a lot of discussion, a lot of people tapping into you and your expertise. And it's probably something we haven't covered in loads of depth since uh, Derek Hansen came on the podcast, God knows how long ago, five years ago. Um, it's been mentioned, but not gone in depth. So that's why, that's the, the reason I wanted to get you on. But before we dive into microdosing, a uh, bit of story on you. Like people don't know who you are, what you're doing now, how you've got to where you are. Yeah, so I'm currently working at the Football Association. So my role is women's physical performance coach. Uh, the team I work with directly is the under-17s um, and have done for the last couple of seasons, will be doing for the season coming up. Um, but I've worked throughout the whole pathway um, from under-23s down um, with some very infrequent support to the Lionesses uh, with the seniors. But um, that's mostly just in terms of like profiling, testing and stuff like that. Uh, on the odd occasion, it was was completed. So, yeah, I've been at the FA for this will be my fifth season that I've just completed um three of those or three and a half of those was as a PhD student so they funded my PhD which was very uh, kind of them and appreciate that massively um and that was to look into microdosing um as a potential sort of programming solution for for our international players um the last year and a half has been as a full-time um member of the staff prior to that um I was completing my master's and 
working for a short period at Berry Football Club within their academy. And then before that, I was doing my undergrad. So I've, I've gone straight through undergrad, master's, PhD, all at University of Salford. So working with like the likes of Paul Comfort, John McMahon, Paul Jones, like some very uh, well-known names from that group. Uh, and they've been like pretty instrumental in sort of the research aspect of, of where I've come from. Um, but yeah, so followed it through and then just got experience, as much experience as I could do along the way. So during my undergrad, I was working with sort of a lot of the university sport teams that, that sort of, we yeah, we helped out. And then got the role in academy football and men's academy football with Berry, um, which then was a stepping stone into working in football and getting the, the role at the FA. So it's it's a short career so far and like long may it continue. But um, yeah, there's been a lot packed into it and I've like enjoyed both aspects of the research as well as actually getting involved in, in the coaching as well. So Nice. Excellent. What an exciting time to be involved in women's sport. Oh, not yeah. only women's sport, but women's football, especially now with a couple of days into the uh, to the World Cup. Yeah, super exciting time. Yeah, it's like the way it's been blowing up, and obviously with the Euros win last last summer, which was unbelievable. Like managed to be there for the final. It's like yeah, one of the best days. Just the atmosphere was incredible. It was really friendly atmosphere, and yeah, packing out Wembley for that final was was unbelievable. So yeah, we've got a lot of talented talented players coming through the system and it's like yeah as you say really exciting time excellent right let's dive in thank you for that by the way but let's dive in so microdosing what is it and what isn't it and i think this is something that you i asked you in your sportsmith six and we dived into microdosing but feel free to build that out add a bit more extra context but yeah is there any confusion or has confusion built up around microdosing and could you just smooth that over for us yeah, for sure. So what what is it? Uh, if you go by out, so we published, as part of my PhD, published a uh, meta-analysis on training frequency. And we actually provided, so we provided a definition within that. So our definition of microdosing is the division of total volume within a microcycle across frequent, short duration, repeated bouts. So that's the sort of, yeah, the almost dictionary definition that we've, we've provided. But I think with that is a lot of like I think a lot of coaches like things that are black and white particularly like technical coaches that we work with they want things to be a bit black and white we've kept this very ambiguous and gray as a definition because like it all is all a bit relative um in the way that like shorter duration like if you've got athletes who are doing resist or if we just focus on resistance training doing resistance training however many hours a week that because they're well trained they might be doing two a couple of hours a day if it ties into their sports so olympic weightlifters like their technical sessions are their weightlift like resistance training sessions as well so shorter duration or short duration for them might be 45 minutes to an hour whereas and then like that repeated throughout the week whereas actually for like footballers that our soccer players that I work with, like we'll be lucky to get a couple of hours in a week. So actually short duration for that might be your 15 to 20 minutes, either prior to going out on the pitch or depending on how your scheduling works, it might end up being being post session. Um, so yeah, I guess that's how like we define it. And like the frequency will change depending on training status, depending on your sport and your scheduling. Um, but it's just that repeated element of knowing what your total volume is going to be within that microcycle and then dividing it across however many ways you want to do it. Um, and that's where you start then layering it up in the way that actually, yeah, there's a few benefits or potential benefits that you can get from there in terms of with the timing of it. If you're doing it pre-session, you might actually acutely be able to get some benefits from a post-activation performance enhancement point of view or a priming point of view if you're doing it the night before or however many hours before training. Um, so there's additional layers to it, but at its most basic level, I'd say it is just the division of, of volume. So as part of my PhD, we ended up um, doing an intervention, which was sort of your classic like training frequency study but we did it within a team sport in season because then there's that added like contextual factors uh, involved. And that was a group of 
category two um, football players or soccer players that were were used to performing in season to or having prescribed two sessions a week. They were about 45 minutes to an hour long. We divided them across four sessions and they were still full body. So rather than um, like dividing it up in the way that you might do legs one day or like body part split or however you want to look at that, um, we did it where it was just the number of sets that were then divided up um, everything else pretty much stayed the same. And like with the meta-analyses that we ended up getting published uh, on training frequency, providing that the volume is matched between the groups, there's no real difference between whether you do it multiple times a week or just once or twice, um, as the case was there. I guess where the differences then start occurring is actually if the compliance is a bit lower in one group or the volumes aren't matched because, I mean, we know we have issues with players that like they get niggles, they end up missing training because of whatever reason in terms of the resistance aspect to that. And then therefore compliance drops. So I, re- I remember you did like a series of podcasts with with some of the guys from the FA a, few, a couple of years ago. I remember Ben Rosenblatt mentioning the fact that like at its most basic level, I think microdosing can have a really big impact on just increasing compliance in the way that you miss one session out of a twice a week, then you're missing 50% of the volume. Whereas if you've got four sessions across the week and you miss one session, then you're only missing 25%. Um, obviously, the more you divide it up, the lower that percentage is. And But if you're only doing one session a week, because that's all you can fit in, you've got a two-game week, for example, you miss that and you're missing 100% of the volume. And that's when you start... Yeah, getting towards some level of detraining. So, so I kind of rambled on a little bit around. No, that's great. It but yeah, that's probably its most basic level. What it isn't, just to to go on and answer that question, is like I don't put like a big disclaimer up and like I don't think we or we being the royal way of like me and the guys who have supported me throughout our PhD believe that it's like the be all and end all. I think it is another tool that can be used to help in a number of different ways but it isn't necessarily always appropriate there might be times in the season or with certain groups of athletes where it isn't the right way about going about things alternatively like it does have the potential to bring lots of different benefits which we have covered in a recent review that's that's just been published so yeah if one tool in the toolbox I think it could be a, like a Swiss army knife because I'm biased and I think there's lots of different options and different avenues that it could go down and based off like various acute chronic programming strategies and motor learning, individualization, which we can go into more detail on. But um, yeah, I don't think it's the like the be all and end all just to sort of front that up. I think there's loads of benefits to it, but there's potential pitfalls as well, which we, we can go into detail as well. Absolutely. We'll dive into all that uh, in the next 45 minutes. But there was a was it an editorial that we'd mentioned. I can't remember what we'd quoted in the uh, or you'd mentioned in the Sportsmith Six that there was a not a, not a questioning not a questioning of microdosing, but is it is it just a like an, a revamp of something else with a with a cool name? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So there was yeah an opinion piece that sort of new old well old wine new bottle or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and like. To some degree, I'd like agree with like that statement in the way that actually, again, just to refer back to the review that we've just had published, like this, you can take so much, so many different influences from different areas of strength conditioning. Um, it doesn't, yeah, where the concepts therefore aren't new, we just might be shaping them up and applying them in a different way. Um, and yeah, I guess like to quote back to, or go back to Hansen, who probably first mentioned it with you in, in his podcast like a few years ago, he then like followed it up uh, with a, fo- so he he mentioned it in a blog post that, uh, yeah, introduced the concept. He then published another blog post that was, yeah, referring to it in terms of a flavor of the month trend and actually wanted to rebrand it to micro priming rather than microdosing because of that, I guess his thoughts around like it's just repetitive, like well not repetitive, but sprint drills and coming at it from a sprint coaching um, perspective. It's just that that repeated element of increasing the volume of work 
that might be boring and it might be a bit monotonous, but if you're breaking it up, you're then getting greater intensity. And so, yeah, it's becoming maybe a popular term, but I think it is actually, I'd probably refer it more to as like an umbrella term, which we can then fit a lot of different concepts under. Um, like I said, in terms of like acute chronic programming, we've got like the, uh, like from an acute perspective, post-activation performance enhancement, like you'll do your microdose volume, a very small amount of microdose volume, and then potentially have benefits a few minutes later on another training stimulus. Priming might be a few hours later, and then like your tra- classic sort of super compensation, sort of 72 hours uh, plus. Um, and that's where we, with that review, really wanted to hone in on the fact that although the sort of language that you may use and the concepts or not the concepts. So yeah, whether it's the language that is used that changes or the mechanism that is there for either adaptation or performance enhancement, like they might change, but the picture of it stays the same. So the time frame might be a few minutes. It might be a couple of hours. It might be a few days. The language, therefore, you then use alongside that will will change but actually the picture of it is you apply a stress a bit like the classic fitness fatigue model you apply a stress you then recover from it and you super compensate or you get some level of potentiation so yeah we wanted to really focus in on the fact that it's a full spectrum of acute and chronic but the picture pretty much can stay the same throughout uh, it's just then the language that changes and and um the mechanisms that underpin that either adaptation or enhancement so um yeah I, just to circle back to the fact that it, we do pull a lot of influence from different concepts so you've mentioned a couple of benefits well quite a few benefits of microdosing is there anything in addition to the ones that you've mentioned compliance um post activation potentiation priming all that kind of stuff is there anything in addition to that that we could men- that you need to mention yeah, definitely. So I guess there was within the framework that we've just had published, uh, there's sort of four concepts or four overarching um, buckets with the, these sort of categories that they fall under. So first one's competition schedule with microdosing and the ability to have a bit more flexibility around when, because it's smaller chunks of time, when you impl- implement the sessions you can be a bit more manipulative around your competition schedule. So within academy football, when I worked in that, within like under 18s, you typically play your games on a Saturday or Sunday, but typically on a Saturday, but you'll have your FA Youth Cup games on a Wednesday. And then if any games get cancelled, particularly over the winter, then they get backlogged and you end up having a period of fixed congestion, which happens in senior football as well. So actually, when you're starting to get into that two game weeks or three games in 10 days, which starts to get into the world of the international football that that we work in, where you've only got a few days turnaround, then actually the flexibility of, okay, we've got 20 minutes here, we can fit in this stimulus so that we don't get a level of detraining because they're missing sessions. Um, So yeah, competition schedule is one bucket that, that we go into. The acute chronic programming, which I've kind of mentioned before, which as well as the post-activation performance enhancement, resistance priming, you can get right, the repeated bout effects and utilize that. So potentially as you come into the end of one training cycle, you know you're going to introduce a novel stimulus in the next one. You might be able to microdose from what would be a minimum effective dose. Um, and we can come on to why they're two very different concepts a little later. But you might then microdose a smaller dose of whether it's eccentric only exercise or just a novel stimulus, you might be able to build that up to them when you actually start integrating it fully within your resistance training program within that new cycle. So there's that, there's various training sequencing aspects of like when and how you put your, or you break up those uh, microdosing sessions and then potentially even concurrent training as well. So You've got a shorter session, a bit more flexibility around it. Actually, if you're doing some very focused, really focused aerobic work, or if you're microdosing your aerobic work, but um, yeah, there's levels where you can maybe split the time difference between those sessions 
like further to then not end up having as much of an interference effect, particularly right within your team sport athletes. Um, so yeah, acute chronic programming that they sit in the motor learning is one of the other buckets. So we sort of included growth and maturation, long-term athlete development in that, and then injury risk mitigation or return to play. They fit in there where actually the volumes that they're doing can't be too high in one session because then you get fatigue is either risk of further injury or actually you really want to focus on their motor learning patterns, getting good reps. So doing short but more frequent can then improve or help assist with that. And then the final bucket was individualization. So we included female athlete health and performance within that because although a lot there's a lot of research that sort of outlines that there's not that much difference or there's not that much effect of um, like menstruation impacting training. But actually when you dig deeper into it, it's very, like very individualized. Like we obviously working, I work within women's football, like the symptomology and the effects of the menstrual cycle can actually be like so widely yeah, such a wide range within that, within just one squad, especially at the younger levels where they maybe haven't had the education or the experience to know how to either deal with those symptoms or find strategies to, to benefit them within that period. Actually, within those individuals, there may be times where you go, okay, we want you to focus about what's happening out on the pitch today don't worry about your resistance training now we'll either tackle that later or because like we're only missing 25% of your 100% volume like we can change things a little bit and be a bit more flexible so I guess yeah compliance and flexibility are probably two things that run throughout the whole thing and player autonomy I think something that we're really going after at the FA now is like decision making in players like we expect players to make decisions out on the pitch from a footballing perspective. So why are we taking that decision-making away from them off the pitch? Um, so actually you might get an individual, like if it's appropriate for them to do so, if you've got enough days for recovery, you might get some individuals who go, no, I'd rather get all my training volume done in this one session so I don't have to see the gym again. You might on the flip side, get someone who again, doesn't want to be in the gym that much, but would rather just do 20 minutes in one day so they don't have to be in there for as long. But then like yeah increase their compliance through that um so yeah there's a degree of flexibility with with that sort of player autonomy and providing that they're given the right guardrails of well we're gonna if you want to be in every day then we can like either taper the week so that you're still doing it every day you might have one slightly longer session than uh towards game day but you're still able to do it every day. We'll still chunk it up slightly differently. So I guess that's one other thing to to consider is the fact that, yeah, we talk about dividing volume across short and frequent, the short duration, frequent bouts, but they don't have to be equal. Like if we, if we're talking about just dividing total volume, then actually you might be able to taper your week where you have a 20 minute session or a 25 minute session at the beginning of your training week. And then a five minute, 10 minute, like, primer on a match day um so yeah there's that individualization aspect to that and trainer status probably it falls under that bracket but maybe influences the decisions a bit more compared to some of them which are influenced by microdosing um so yeah they're the four buckets that we've ended up putting things under and the review i keep mentioning is very focused on team sports and resistance training but I think there's a lot more research to be done before we can like make all the claims in the world. But there's always the potential that it doesn't necessarily have to be in a team sport. I think there's a lot of value in individual sports being able to use it. I've recently had a, a conversation with a few of the guys at um, Swimming Scotland um, who are with the, say, EIS. It's UK IS now, I think. Um about a couple of their swimmers and how they could potentially integrate microdosing within sort of their competition schedule or the lead into that, as well as some return to uh, sport work. Um, and then like a military population as well. So 
or tactical population um, because a lot of the early research that was done in this area was it was referred to as microtraining rather than microdosing but uh killing et al uh, they divided uh, three 45 minute sessions into nine 15 minute sessions within a military population and found that there were no real differences and that included like endurance work as well as strength and power uh, loosely um within that so yeah the populations i think that microdosing could influence are greater than just team sports and then i've alluded to it there with the the military stuff but the the type of training in terms of like we talk about resistance training but speed work um i guess plyos potentially if you want to split them up from resistance training but aerobic so we do we've done quite a lot of work with gareth samford before i know you've added on them times um those podcasts are class so anyone else who's not listened to them give them a a good listen because like he knows what he's talking about and he he does talk about a lot of like putting putting like money in the bank in terms of the low level like low intensity aerobic work for a lot of athletes like you, you might need to accumulate four or five hours of that across a week or how i'd probably pick that number out of my head but (laughs) <laughs> like you need to or you can accumulate a lot of that and it's like putting money in the bank for when the cost of games or competition then takes it out and you might you yeah you'll probably have an easier time trying to convince uh, an athlete particularly in team sports to accumulate that amount of time if you break it up into 20 minute sessions frequently throughout the week and if they're then of low cost and don't really impact um their training then actually as a form of like recovery or on a recovery day or anything like that it's easier to drip feed them in like multiple occasions so yeah i think it there's benefits to not just team sports not just within resistance training but across loads of areas good so good so with all that said I know you mentioned in your caveat the the conversation with this we don't believe this is a be all and end all there's there's certain times when you wouldn't use it what are those certain times when you think, I don't know if this is based on experience, based on you know speaking to the people, based on research from yourself and from others, any particular reason why you wouldn't think this is appropriate? Yeah, well, I guess a couple of examples. So I guess throwing back to the type of population that you're working with, for team sports, it's very easy or could be quite easy to fall in the trap of, we'll use it all season. I think there's probably value in it being the case in some sports because otherwise, like when are you getting the training stimulus in? Uh, if you can improve players throughout pre-season and then they don't detrain throughout the season, then actually from where we are now, that's potentially a big win for certain individuals. And so there's potential value to it, but actually if you're already working on a fairly minimal minimum effective dose throughout a season, which that probably just comes down to the programming anyway, but if you're just work, thinking, right, I'm working on a minimum effective dose, we're going to microdose that. If you then start falling below that total like 100% compliance each week, then you're then falling below your minimum effective dose. So yeah, there's potential pitfalls there. I think when it comes to like an individual athlete, you've got time within the season where you've got maybe a general preparation phase that the bulk of your volume probably shouldn't necessarily come from a microdosing because you've got the time to hit them with a large volume, allow them to recover and do it again. Um, but saying that, like I sort of alluded to the Olympic weightlifting stuff uh, earlier where there was research by Hackenin and... Can't remember the other author's name, which is poor. But Hacken uh, did some work where, like, they were doing like huge volumes, but they were essentially microdosing because they split split that into two a days throughout a week. So actually, there's still potential benefits from an individual if you are trying to get huge volumes in there. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's probably times within that as a cycle, and then as a team sports example, when we were doing the intervention for, for my PhD, which is sort of 
in the works to, to get published. <laughs> um, the There were two individuals within the microdosing group who fell below 50% compliance. And those two happened to be goalkeepers. Like, it might just be coincidence. But when you then think about how their schedule is built, because they do a lot of position-specific work prior to the rest of the team going out, that happened to be more often than not when the microdosing group were completing their sessions. They do a pre-pitch session, um, whereas when they did the traditional sessions, because that was scheduled for the afternoon after they've all been out on the pitch, then they were able to complete them to a greater extent. And so, yeah, I think like maybe if there's position-specific work or the scheduling is different for some individuals, then it may be more appropriate. And then like when you think about goalkeepers as well, match day can typically be one of their lowest volume days apart from any rest day depending on who they're playing and how busy they are in in the net so actually on those days you might be able to hit them with a traditional volume and then microdose the rest of the week like and taper it to um to what they're doing out on the pitch um so yeah i still think there's value in microdosing for for those individuals but it has to be done well or done yeah done right in the way that they still get a training stimulus throughout the week and if they keep missing it because they're not doing it with the rest of the group then there's the flexibility to move that we just with like young players and young individuals who still have like education they still have loads of other things that fill up their time and if there is less flexibility then a more rigid like two a week might be more more appropriate so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, it's all about bringing all that information to life. So how does Matt use it with his girls at the FA? How are other people at the FA in different age groups using microdosing? So all about the practical application in part two. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training so for pro sport teams and athletes hytro is the only performance bfr brand to create pressure validated bfr wearables that are practical safe and scalable allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before widely used by top flight rugby football cricket and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms away game travel hotels or at home hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows bfr to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely to find out how hytro bfr can give your athletes a competitive edge visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com and now back to the episode with Matt. So the next thing for me to ask is we've we've gone through benefits, we've gone through potential areas or circumstances, situations where it's not appropriate, either on a group level or an individual level, and certain things to think about, like the goalkeeper scenario, that's just scheduling and I suppose a programming issue, maybe rather than a microdosing versus traditional approach. However, it'd be great to get some specific examples for how you've used it or how colleagues have used it and feel free to kind of go back or use what you're currently doing now and maybe a little bit sensitive with the FA I'm, I'm not quite sure but to get some real world insight into how you've tackled it how when you've put it in when you've taken it out why you've done each thing and just get a bit of yeah real world stuff if that's all right yeah definitely so I guess from my world in terms of the under 17s we we get a huge range in where players come into our camps from, uh, from like a training volume or training history in the way that we have some players who are playing or training day in, day out with a senior outfit. We've got some who are in like under 18s teams within the academies that are training most days, playing a couple of times a week. And then we also have some players that are right at the younger age band where it's like under 16s, they might still only be training twice a week and playing once a week at most. Uh, I guess on 
for a little bit more detail of those in senior squads, they might be training day in, day out, but actually their match minutes might be like rock bottom as well because they're obviously sat on a bench and because they're away with the seniors, they might not be getting match minutes or they're wanting to be kept fresh for seniors just in case they end up getting game time. So yeah, we get a really wide range in where players are coming from. So the information that we get from the clubs is crucial on that. So we can try and individualise as much as we can coming into it or have an idea of where they are coming into it. So we can then, like with the repeat about stuff, in the way that any kind of novel stimulus is going to cook them. And if we've got three games in seven days, which is typically at 17s, we'll have two day turnarounds. So we'll have match day, match day plus one, match day minus one, and then another match day and do that again. So we'll typically have camps where we've got three fixtures. If it's a tournament, then for Euros finals, it goes to five games, but we still only have those two-day turnarounds. And I'm aware there's other sports in the world that actually have quicker turnarounds, have more matches and a more condensed fixture schedule. Um, but in terms of what the players are prepared for, it's a big spike in load. It's a big, like, yeah, big change for them. So... That's where like the microdosing thought process came in, where my PhD stemmed from, is that actually if we've got these players for 10 to 14 to 21, and if you're at seniors like to 30 plus days, then actually that's when your training residuals start depleting and you start detraining for certain characteristics. So one thing that we've actually been successful with last couple of seasons, and particularly in the last season, is just a process of on training days we have an individual prep session which i guess is more of like the traditional like pre-activation um uh, it's players time to do what they need to do to get ready we're there to interject with certain individuals if they've got anything that they're coming off the back of in terms of injury any specific work we want to do with them prior to the next session which is then a team prep session so that individual prep will be like anywhere from half an hour to like 15 minutes depending on the age group the then team preparation will be whole group doing some level of microdosing which is where actually this will be like another 15 to 20 minutes it'll be as individualized as we can make it based off where the players are coming in no we try our yeah we try our best not to implement any like really new and novel stimuli again so that it's not cooking them for for match day but we'll get some level of stimulus in before then going out onto the pitch and then either doing either going straight into football because we've done the work in the gym, they're ready to go, they get the boots on and they can start doing some technical work where either they can then do the technical work and then if we're doing some extensive sessions where they're going to cover a lot of distance at high speed, we can build them up to that or we can do that straight away and then them go into the technical work. It allows that process of individual prep team prep then allows us to manipulate what happens on the pitch a little bit more and we get buy-in from the coaches because as soon as they're on the grass they have the potential to get stuck straight in depending on what the coaches are wanting to do so it gives the impression that we're giving well we are giving time back to to the coaches where they don't get a great deal at international football like we the players will meet up on a match day minus two so the majority of training sessions is a minus one where you actually wanting the volume to be a little bit lower to like get a lot of the tactical information in quickly to these players who yeah have really quick turnarounds and maybe only just had a plus one where depending on the group we might have had the day off we might have had some light work might have had some top-ups with the with the subs but for the majority of the starting 11 they'll probably have that day off within the youth pathway so yeah, we don't get a lot of time with them on the pitch. It creates a bit of more buy-in and a bit more cohesion with with the technical coaches on that. So that's where we'll fit our microdosing uh, sessions in. And yeah, like I say, the information we get from clubs is crucial on that because we can then know what they've got coming in. So actually, if we know what they would have had planned for that for their week, we can microdose back to. Actually, we might not quite get the volumes that they that they were aiming for but we're still providing that same stimulus at the same intensity or load that they were planned for. It might just be the volumes that have changed slightly. Um, so yeah, that's in an ideal world. For those for when we don't get that information, 
it then makes it a little bit more tricky, but we'll also then work on things that is going to sort of almost that really low volume work that allows us to maybe get a post-activation performance enhancement stimulus type stimulus, because I mean, training status wise, if they're not, a lot of the research says you have to be of a certain strength level to get some of those benefits. But actually, as long as it's not detrimental to performance and it's still following a similar sort of pattern to what they do back at club, then it allows us to continue that. So they're not detraining when they're with us. So they're still performing as they should do at the end of camp. But at the same time, we're not then handing them back to the clubs where you go, oh, you've got to start again, sorry. Um, so that's sort of loosely how we've used it with, within the pathway. Because that's, that's really interesting. I mean, not everyone who's listening is going to work with international footballers when they've got big periods of time where they don't see them or have hands-on sessions, group sessions. But each, say, take football, for example, or rugby, you're always going to have them groups. You're going to have the regular, the, the small group of regular starters. You're going to have the small group of regular subs. You're going to have those in between that come in and out. Then you're going to have the younger guys or girls who are on the periphery, who are maybe... Sometimes subs, sometimes not in the squad. So you're always dealing with these four, five groups that are interchanging. So it's it's definitely applicable, even though obviously not everyone's going to work in international football and, and tournament football. So yeah, definitely. I think it adds that. I guess it, that comes into like the individualization stuff that I was talking about earlier. Like we we try and go after like it's probably an is it an oxymoron? Like like anyway. Basically, we call it collective individualization. So although it seems like a conflict in terms, like actually we start to bucket players together based off some of their physical characteristics that we like we investigate through profiling, where you go, actually, you guys are, are of a similar pattern or like strength or yeah, physiology that means that you guys can do a fairly similar stimulus or like these are your strengths like we know you're good at decelerating so we're going to put you through maybe a little bit more of a challenging deceleration task compared to some individuals who we know aren't good at that so there's an element of allowing us to do that in small chunks rather than everyone doing the same thing everyone doing the same yeah volume and then it cooking some individuals and disadvantaging them compared to others who are maybe a bit more uh, prepared for that. So you you, you spoke about uh, you spoke a little bit about the minimum effective dose and not if you if that's where you aim, there's, you're only going to because of lack of compliance because of I don't know appointments for for semi professional players or you know little niggles that brings you down from there. So in terms of like detraining. And that variation in in um, training frequency. Where do you where do you where are you trying to pitch it when it comes to that microdosing? Just so you're not looking at the minimum all the time. What's the what's the least we can do? Because that's that is something that does get peddled a little bit, like the the minimum effective dose. And like you say, it's not always great because and you want to go down from there. So where do you pitch it, and how do you work that with the the current philosophy of microdosing? Yeah, I guess it's we've maybe not or maybe not nailed it on in the way that yeah, with the dose response of whatever prescription that you're going for, you can go anywhere from minimum effective dose to maximum effective dose. So within the review that we've just published that I've mentioned again, that we've got the yeah, we've translated it from a like pharmacological point of view in the way that you have an efficacy curve which is one s curve then a little bit further along once you go past 100 percent response in that efficacy curve it then starts increasing a toxicity toxicity curve so a second s within that bracket is like a very gray area that we in pharmacology it's referred to as the therapeutic index so in that it's like a doctor if they're prescribing any kind of medication can go from that minimum effective dose to the maximum effective dose and be comfortable that within that population you might start at the bottom and work up until it is effective for that individual knowing that there's individual range within that if you go past that maximum effective dose that's where or planned overreaching as we've sort of compared it to you then start getting into the realms of lethal dose or overtraining um 
So we like we are really keen to advocate the fact that you can prescribe anywhere within that zone. Like we call it a training zone rather than a therapeutic index, but you can prescribe anywhere within that range. So actually, like the way I sort of alluded to the fact that we might have not got it quite nailed on is like, do you prescribe for your like ideal optimal training zone, right slap bang in the middle, knowing that you're probably going to miss a few sessions. So it might edge towards a minimum effective dose or you plan for your planned overreaching, like right at the top of the maximum effective dose, because you know, you're going to miss some sessions or, you know, your athletes and you know, they're not going to miss anything. So actually you, you prescribe spot on because if you aim to go over and then they just happen to turn up to every session and apply it and then the technical coaches are like, well, why are they cooked? Like why are they not um, in the best shape that they'd expect or why are they so fatigued? And you go, well, actually, because they actually turned up for once. So like <laughs> there's elements of like, where do you go with that? Because then actually, if you do prescribe for that minimum effective dose right at the bottom end, because you, you want them to be in a good shape, on the assumption that they're going to be able to be at every um, every session or you're able to manipulate every session, but then it in reality, it, it doesn't happen. That's when you start getting below that line or that threshold. So, and it, it becomes a bit trickier. So yeah, I don't have a real answer as to like where we sit there yet, I think. And it's very individual as well. The way that actually you may, you may start at the bottom for some individuals because you know, what they're like in terms of character and whether they uh, attend every session or um, whether they're always the ones that are first in the physio room at the beginning of the morning just saying, oh, like I've got SNC today, like that type of thing. You might prescribe them differently. Um, so yeah, it's very individual in terms of responses, the same way that like with any intervention that we've done, the intervention for my PhD, for example, you get very different responses from even like the same training volume, the same pre like prescription and the same compliance and you still get different because everyone's physiology is different. So yeah, that's where we're very keen to, again, keep it quite gray in the way that like there's a bandwidth that you could prescribe in and it may change for various individuals, but actually providing you're still within that, then you're going to get some level of adaptation. Um, and it then always depends on like the magnitude of adaptation that you're expecting or wanting within that time frame. So actually, if you're getting a small like effect size of in, of improvement from day one of the season to the end of the season, well actually that's a win because you still it's still improvement. Like you're not always going to see large in, improvements throughout the season. Whereas actually across the the six weeks that you've got for or however long you got, it's probably even less for pre-season that shows how long I've been out of club football um, if you've got a chunk of time within that off-season that you're really hitting them with large volumes then actually even though the duration is small you might see large increases um, but an increase is a lot an improvement in performance is an improvement it's better than a degradation so yeah you probably a very great answer but I think we should be comfortable with that in the way that actually individuals are different like each sport's different. So you may fall within that training zone or that therapeutic index at various places at various times. My last question for you is you focus on the resistance training side of things and spoke really well on, on the work that you've done, the experience that you've had and how it's implemented. Is there any work going on from yourself? Are you the next, are you the person to look at the speed side of things or the, power side of things is the other people working on that from a microdosing perspective in a, on a research angle that you know of not that i'm aware of okay um like i know it was like essentially first conceptualized like derek hansen coming from a sprinting background like it was very much fair or fairly sprint focused with that and like i definitely see the benefits uh that could come from that um but yeah i think if yeah anyone who is kind of interested in this area generally like feel free to reach out like myself and as i mentioned paul comfort john mcmahon like from a research perspective would be like more than interested to discuss where we've experienced it up till now and where we see the direction i think 
as well as wanting to outline exactly what we thought microdosing could have a potential to influence. We also accept the fact that we're not experts in all those areas at all. Like it's probably like really minute uh, like aspect to that whole framework. And it's a bit of a call to arms to go, look, this is where we think it could influence. Like you guys who are interested in these areas of like growth and maturation or uh, like female athlete health, like if these could, if, if we can help influence or help shape some of the thinking or discussions prior to that then being investigated, then um, we'd be more than happy to do so. I think it's an exciting area and or topic area that is very much de developing. Although we're taking lots of concepts from elsewhere, those concepts haven't necessarily been looked at from a microdosing lens and been applied yet. And I know there's loads of difficulties when you are setting up a research project within like you can choose however many frequencies for to compare against another infinite number of frequencies, but as well as then potentially needing control groups and things like that, it, it then becomes tricky. But yeah, if we can help shape it and provide some guidance to, to anyone on that front, like it was a bit of a call to arms to say, like, let's investigate it. Superb. Well, you mentioned people contacting you. Where can people find you, your work? I know you've mentioned the review a couple of times. Where can people get that? Yeah, so, I mean, I've probably plastered the review all over my Twitter. So the Twitter is probably the easiest place to contact me. So at M underscore Cuthbert 15 is my handle. Um, and like LinkedIn, Dr. Matthew Cuthbert. Uh, yeah, and then... The, yeah, they're the, probably the easiest ways to, to get in contact with me. And if you don't hear back from me immediately, just give me another nudge because I can't be, as you've experienced, can can be slow You're a busy man. You're a busy man. Don't apologize. It's absolutely um, fine. So, yeah, they're the places to, to get in touch or give, like like I've mentioned, Paul Comfort or John McMahon uh, a nudge if if they're if you're ever interested in type of research because they're always super willing to, to have a conversation as well. Um, obviously, they've got research areas like far and away exceeding where where just the microdosing is and um, so yeah any kind of interest in, and just give any of us a shout and we'd be more than happy to to get involved perfect well matt thank you very much really appreciate you coming on really appreciate your flexibility in my the constraints that are going on over here right now but um like keep in touch excited to see where the area goes it's been a long time coming to get you on and and uh, and chat microdosing so i really appreciate it thank you no thank you very much it's been like enjoyable chat and yeah let's keep in touch cheers matt thanks mate cheers thanks for tuning in to episode 459 of the pacey performance podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode on microdosing it's certainly a topic that comes up regularly on the podcast but also in sportsmith articles as well which Matt referenced heavily in this episode that he did a Sportsmith 6 with us about microdosing where he goes into some of these concept, concepts in written form. Big thanks to Team Builder, Hawking Dynamics and Hytro for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.